from Galatians 2, 14 to 21. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Anna. Would you pray with me and let's begin that way today. Father, I thank you for this scripture. And it is weighty. And so would you help us as we study it together to understand it well and to walk out of this place and live it well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have been talking about this little chunk of text in Galatians chapter 2, and it involves an event. And the event was that Peter uh, distanced himself from his Gentile brothers because he was afraid of what his Jewish brothers would think to see him eat with Gentile sinners. Now, Peter knew that Gentiles were justified by God through Jesus. He knew because of Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, that it didn't have anything to do with what they ate or the ceremonies that they did or didn't observe. They, he knew that it was because of Jesus that even Gentile sinners could stand as right in front of a holy God. He knew that, and yet he reverts back to his upbringing, to what he's used to, to these Gentiles being dogs and sinners. And Paul sees this, and Paul stands up and opposes Peter, and he doesn't say, you're wrong. What he says is, you're not Peter. Listen, you're not walking the gospel. You're not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so they have this little discussion. Let's put it that way, discussion. And in this text that was just read, I'm going to go verse by verse because this text is actually what Paul would have said to Peter. These are his words to Peter. A lot of times, there's some very famous verses in here, very famous words. And a lot of times we don't remember that these are the words that Paul would have had with Peter in this discussion where he's saying, Peter, you've just forgotten the gospel. Let's get back to it so that we can walk it. And so, here's what I want you to walk out of the church with today. The gospel is a line that must be walked, and when we fail to walk it, because we've attempted to go back to the law, 
to make us right with God, when we, when we don't walk the line by doing that, then we cannot avoid the disaster of Christ having died for nothing. And so, as we walk down through this verse by verse, we come across a very logical, sequenced set of arguments by Paul. Let's start in verse 15. We ourselves by Jews are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You can see Paul with his arm around Peter saying, you know what? We're fellow Jews. We're not like the Gentile sinners. And yet, here's what we know, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, even as Jews, even Jewish people who adhere to the law, we have decided to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be justified because we understand that that's the only way. We, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's sum those two verses up this way. Paul is saying to Peter, there's no salvation in the law. I don't know about you. Every week on a Monday, I will write out a list. And the list is, here's what I have to get done this week. Anybody in that boat? Yes. And do you know what that list does for me? Here's what it does. At the end of the week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever the end of the week is that week, here's what it tells me. It tells me what I did not get done. Anybody? You there? Yes. You make these lists, but you can never keep them. And that's kind of what Paul is hinting at with Peter. I am reminded of Benjamin Franklin himself, who tried to live life according to his own rules. He actually wrote a bunch of rules that he thought he could keep. Nobody from the outside forced them on him. He came up with them himself. And he thought, well, surely if I come up with them myself, then I can keep them. He found that he couldn't even keep the rules that he made for himself. When we can't keep the list, the rules that we make, there are consequences. And Paul's saying to Peter, the list that God has given to us, the rules that he's given to us, we can't keep. And there are consequences of that. The consequence of not being able to keep God's list, God's rules, is death. That comes from Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, where Adam and Eve, this great experiment, they walk on their, on their own terms. They decide to do what God has told them not to do. And God comes in and says, because you've, cho- you've chosen to live your own way, you will die. Dying, you will die. The consequence of not following the law is always death, condemnation. And so the law is useless for salvation. If there's one thing that the law is really good at, it's kind of what I've hinted at so far. The law is really good at pointing out our problem. And the problem is we can't measure up. We can't keep the law. The law is great at pointing that out. It's kind of like a flashlight. If you are driving down the road on a dark night and you have car trouble, you pull off to the side, and you get out, and you, if you are like most of us, whether or not you know anything about cars, you pop the hood and you look under. Some of us have no idea what we're looking at. Others, others do, right? But all of us are looking at a, an engine in the dark. And so what do we do? 
we get a flashlight, right? And we turn the flashlight on. And some of us will realize, oh my goodness, there's a, there's a bolt that's loose. It needs screwed back in and maybe I, can, maybe I can be on my way. Others of us just know that, well, I can see something, but I really don't know what the problem is. I just know something's wrong. That's what a flashlight is really good at. It points out the problem. Now, if you know what the problem is, that a bolt needs tightened, let me ask this. Can the flashlight fix that? No. Flashlight isn't a wrench. It's not a pair of pliers. It will not help you to remedy the problem. Some of you who came in here today uh, took a good look at the stage, and you recognize that there's something that doesn't quite fit there's something that is broken on the stage. How many of you have recognized that, that there's something here that just doesn't quite fit? I see one hand over here. Well done, Kevin Addington. Good job. Okay. Oh, a couple, couple more. All right. Now, when I shed light on the broken thing, you will instantly know what's going on. Let's hit that light cue, and let's let the light point out what is broken. Do you see it? What is it? It's a microphone, and the cord is going nowhere. Yeah, it's a cut cord. Uh, there's a little thing, you know, uh, part, of the, part of the cord is broken. Now, how, there were just a few of you that before we shed light on that, that knew that that was a problem. How many of you know that that's a problem and a broken cord now? Every one of you. Why? Because we pointed it out with the light. That's what the law is really good at doing. The law is really good at pointing into our life and saying, you're broken. You can't measure up. You can't be the good person. Even if you desire to be, you can't measure up. So let's go back to the, the, our main lights here. And um, so Paul is reminding Peter of this. Paul says... The law just points out your problem. It can't do anything to fix it. It can't help you. It can't remedy the situation. And so the only remedy is salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 16, that Jesus is the only object of true faith because he alone can fix our problem of not being able to keep the law. And so Peter... Imagine Paul's arm around Peter here. When you accepted the true salvation, Jesus, when you said, even as a Jewish person who's grown up with the law and knows that you need to keep the law, when you said, I need to accept Jesus as the only way to stand before a holy God in a righteous state, when you accepted Jesus, you, you abandoned the law. You recognized it even yourself. That when you chose Jesus, you were rejecting the law. Therefore, Peter, <laughs> what sense does it make to pull Gentile brothers and require them to live under the law that even you realized that you had to abandon when you chose Jesus? If you abandon the law for Christ, then why impose the Gentiles the law that God does not impose on you? Now, that's his very logical argument. Then he makes two really powerful statements. Look at verse 17. He says this, But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. 
Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And I want to I distill those, those emphatic statements, the two that I think he's making in, here in this verse, into two, just two lines. I think they're in your notes. Number one, if we're saved by the law, and he's telling this to Peter. Peter, if we're saved by the law, then Christ is a failure. If we're trying to go back to the law to be justified, then by default, we've conceded that Christ is a failure in that effort. If it's law-keeping that we need to be saved, then the cross of Jesus was not enough, and he fails as a Savior. Here's an important uh, statement number two. If we are saved by the law, then not only does Christ fail, but if we are saved by the law, then we fail as well. We are failures if we are saved by the law. If we abandon the law and accept Christ as our salvation, and then we go back to the law to be justified, like what you have done, Peter. You have abandoned the law, but now you're going back to it because you're afraid of what your Jewish brothers are going to think of you. When you do that, it's like tearing down a wall and then rebuilding it. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. There are many of you in the room that are old enough to remember uh, this guy. His name is Ronald Reagan. Yes, thank you. Uh, you guys, not so much. You're not really, you're not really clued in over here. But uh, some of you even know what this is from. It's 1987, and Ronald Reagan is in Berlin. He's at in front of the Brandenburg Gate, and at the time, there's a divided Berlin. There's an East Berlin, there's a West Berlin because of the holdover from World War II, and Ronald Reagan makes this great speech in front of this Brandenburg Gate, this wall that still stands separating these two parts of one city. And at the end of that speech, he says the words that I know you know. If you know the picture, you know you, I know you know the, the words, right? I think we can say them together. He said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, Right? And two years later, in 1989, uh, the wall was torn down and the two parts of a divided city became one city again and they were free. Now, let's pretend that somebody comes along in 2017 and they have just as much influence as Ronald Reagan, just as much power, just as much sway, and they set themselves up today at the Brandenburg Gate and they say, let's build this wall back. What kind of statement would that make? What kind of implications would that have? Well, first, it would say that what we did all those years ago was pointless. We should build the wall back and make one city into two again. It would say freedom that was gained in 1989 for this city, we didn't need that. Let's build the wall back. That's what Paul is getting at here in verse 18. Peter, we tore down the wall of the law when we accepted Jesus. If we build it back, then we're saying that we don't need Jesus. And if we don't need Jesus, then all we're left with is the wall that we rebuilt. And we've already 
explained, we've already covered that we can't keep the law. It can't save us. And so by rebuilding the wall, we keep ourselves from the very salvation and freedom that was already ours. That is, as the kids say, an epic fail, right? To rebuild the wall. Paul says there's only one solution. There's only one solution. It has two parts. Look at verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When the law was all I had, the thing that it did was it proved me a sinner and it condemned me to die. But the law also did one important thing. It pointed me to what the solution was, which was to Christ. And Christ came and he lived his life and he let, met all the requirements of the law on my behalf. He paid the penalty of breaking the law, which is death. He paid that himself. He died on a cross on my behalf. And so I'm no longer under the law if I'm in Jesus because the penalty has been fra- paid and I'm free of it because when Christ died, if I'm in Jesus then I died too. Now, I need some help because that's, a, that's some deep theology we kind of need to put a picture on. And luckily, Paul does that for us. But what I'm going to need is a married couple uh, who has some wedding rings on today uh, who would be willing to come up here and let me make fun of you for a few minutes. Is that okay? Oh, we have Ian and Bethany. I, we have like, come on up. There were like literally 60 hands pointing, you know, fingers pointing at you. Okay, so Ian and Bethany, come on up. Uh, introduce yourself to everybody. Yes. I, yeah, it, 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 it's on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Ian. I'm the student minister here at Community Christian, and this is my wife, Bethany. Hello. Wonderful. <laughs> Good job. Okay, how long have you been married? Actually, today is one year. Today? How much? How much more appropriate can we get here? This this is awesome. Okay, Um, and so your anniversary is actually today. It is. That's awesome. Okay, and do you have rings? We do. Okay, tell me about your rings. Like, are are they are there is there significance behind the rings? Why did you choose them? Is there some story? What's going on with the rings? So mine actually does. So my ring actually has um, welded into it a purity ring that Bethany wore uh, growing up through high school and college, and I just thought that was kind of a cool idea for me to kind of have that, like literally have like her purity ring in my ring around my finger. I just thought that was really cool. It cost a little extra, but I just thought, man, that's awesome. It's worth it. I mean, she's worth it, right? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> a little extra. Uh, my rings, Ian picked out my engagement ring all on his own, and it's just special to me. Special because he picked it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let me ask this. This is not a question that married couples usually get asked. How long are you planning on being married? <laughs> man. Always. Always. Jesus comes back. Good answer. That's a really good answer. Okay. Now, 
It is an odd question to ask a married couple that, but it shouldn't be. And that's one of the things that Paul is getting at here. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul expands on what he introduces here in Galatians chapter 2. As a matter of fact, the book of Romans is the expanded version of the book of Galatians. A lot of people say that Galatians is Paul's rough draft for Romans. And when we get to Romans chapter 7, here's what he says about married people, right? He uses this illustration of two people who are married. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, this is verse 1 of chapter 7, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Would you agree, Bethany? Yes, you are bound to Ian while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Are you looking forward to that? That's a good answer. Yes. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to that at all. Nevertheless, that's the reality, right? When he dies, your vow, till death do us part, ends. All right? And Paul goes on. He says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul uses... The reality of a marriage situation and the rings on fingers, right, to describe another reality. And the the other reality is the spiritual reality that we all live in. The spiritual reality is this. When we are alive, we are under the law. We are bound by the law. Think of the things that you don't get a choice in. You don't get a choice to pay taxes, right? That's the law. You don't get a choice of whether to keep uh, the fish that is 13 inches. If it's under that, you've got to throw it back. Or if it's over that, you know what, you know what I mean? You, you're not free. You're not free to shoot fireworks anytime you want. You are not free to have a dog without a dog license in Fort Scott. Right? Okay? All right? Oh, yeah, that, uh, hit, that hit some chords there. Okay. But when you die, well, that's a different story. Now I'm released from the law. No more taxes for me. I can shoot fireworks whenever I want. I can keep all the fish that I catch. It doesn't matter. And my dogs don't need licenses, right? And married people are no longer married, all right? Now watch this. If Christ died then he is, in fact, free from the law, just like we would be if we died. But unlike us, when he was alive, he kept all of the law's righteous demands. But even so, he's out from under it because he died. But he's not really dead, is he? After three days, he did what? He's living! We call that the ultimate loophole, right? He's dead, he's out from underneath the law, but he still gets to live. The ultimate loophole. And just like us, it gets better because we are a part of that picture. If I am in Christ because I have followed him and trusted him, if I am crucified with Christ is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, 
then I've met all the requirements of the law just like Jesus, but more importantly, I'm out from underneath the law and its requirements because Jesus is. If I'm in Jesus, then I'm not dead, I'm alive, but I'm released from keeping the law. And I'm released from what the law brings if I don't keep it, which is death. Give our married couple a hand here. Thank you very much. Just like our married couple is free of vows, we are free of the law because we've been crucified with Christ. And what does that look like? Why are, why are we dying to Christ? Paul says the second side of that is that I died to Christ, but now I live to God. You see, the big objection... In this whole, whenever you bring up this whole subject about what the gospel really is and what it really implies, the very first argument that you encounter is if I'm no longer under the law, then what in the world is my motive for living a holy life? Isn't the law necessary? Doesn't that keep us all on track? I mean, if there's no longer any law, if we tear that wall down, then what's to stop everyone from doing whatever they want? And in the words of the famous Ghostbuster, right? There's chaos, human sacrifice, cats living with dogs, mass hysteria, right? What's to stop us from doing whatever we want? First, remember that Even if there is a law, it can never produce a holy life. And if it can't produce a holy life, then something else has to. And Paul says, the thing that will produce a holy life is living to God. That happens because you've died to the law first. And it happens in two ways. We live to the law by identifying with Christ. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who who loved me and gave himself for me. When Christ was crucified, I was crucified as well. I believe in him. And so I have been crucified in him. And what that means is that now I have a new standing before God. What that means is that everything that is true of Jesus is now true of me. Think about all of those things that are true of Jesus. Would you say he's holy? Yes. Is he sinless? Yes. Is he perfect? Yes. Is he a child? Is he a son? Is he an heir? Yes, yes, yes. What about me? Yes. I am holy because I'm in him. I am sinless because I'm in him. I am perfect because I'm in him because of what he's done. I am a child of God. I am a son and a daughter of God. I am an heir to all that God wants to give me because I'm in Jesus. There's a reason that he's called in Scripture our brother because his standing before God is also our own. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm no longer an imperfect failure who can't measure up. I'm no longer on the hook to attempt to earn or merit my salvation through the law. I'm no longer under the curse of the law, which is death and condemnation. I'm no longer one who will face death. I will live just like Jesus is living. Our identity has changed, and it's no longer I who live but Jesus, but Christ. Secondly, living to God looks like this, living for faith, uh, for Christ in faith and not by the law. I'm reading a book that is all about why people do what they do. And 
there is this traditional thought that if you put a carrot in front of somebody and kind of move it in front of them, then they will move too. And that is kind of a traditional picture of motivation, how to motivate people. And that works, but only in certain situations. And what this book is uncovering for me is that there is a a ton more going on in our hearts as to what drives us and what motivates us. All of us have this moral built-in obligation to reciprocate for other people, whether or not there is a rule posted that we should do so. And that drive is always more powerful than a list of rules that you could write out and try to keep. So the researchers that were behind the book went to a daycare, and they saw at this daycare the perfect environment for a test, because what they found was parents who were delivering their children, uh, or I'm sorry, they were picking their children up late. At the end of the day, they were supposed to come at 5, and they were coming at 5.10 or 5.15 or 5.20 or whatever. They were all late. And so the researchers went in, and they said, oh, this is perfect. We can now prove, we'll use this as a little test, and we'll try to prove this idea that negative consequences will always curb negative behavior. And so what we'll do is we'll whack the parents on the wrist for being late, and then they won't be late anymore. Right? Okay. And so what they did is they posted a new rule on the door of the daycare. The rule read this way. As you know, the pickup time is 5 p.m. Since some parents have been coming in late to pick up their children, we will now impose a fine of $10 for all parents picking up their children after 5, 10 p.m. There was a grace period there, but not much. We will add this fine to your monthly bill, and it will accrue each time you are late. So if you're late three times this week, that's 30 bucks times... If you're doing that every week, that's a lot of money, right? Okay. And the researchers took a chair, and they sat back, and they watched. What will happen? What do you think would happen? Some of you know the answer to this. What do you think would happen? Well, surely we're going to have parents who are on time. What really did happen? They weren't. They weren't. Once the fine was in place... Twice as many parents picked up their kids late and probably twice as often. And the researchers are scratching their heads. Why is this? And they came to realize that before the fine was put on the door, the parents had an intrinsic motive for being on time. They had a relationship with the daycare provider. And they didn't want to, they didn't want to abuse or tread on that time. They, they knew that the daycare provider was caring for their precious little Jimmy, right? And I don't want to have the daycare provider mad at me. And so even though I don't live up to it all the time, I do have this inner motivation to be on time because I don't want to disappoint the person that is caring for my child. And that worked. But once the fine was in place, that inner motivation disappeared. Once the fine went up, then this partly moral obligation that everybody felt to be fair to the daycare provider, it disappeared and it shifted into a simple transaction. And all the parents thought, well, now I can simply buy more time. The punishment, the researchers wrote, didn't promote good behavior, good behavior. It crowded it out. That's an important line. And I think we can learn from that about what Paul is writing here. You see, 
this argument, if I'm not under the law, then how will I be good? If, if we don't have a list of rules, then how in the world are we going to promote peace and love in, in, the, in the world? How is that going to happen? Understand first that being under the law doesn't equate to being good. As a matter of fact, once you post a list of rules on the door, it may just crowd out the desire to be good altogether. But if there are no rules posted on the door, then my inner moral obligation to act kicks in, and rightly so, because there's a relationship that I'm trying to honor. And I think that's what Paul gets at here. You see, as a Christian, I'm free from the law, but that doesn't mean that I'm free from honoring the person who tore it down. I look at the cross and what Jesus did for me there, the love the sacrifice, the death, the life that He gave willingly for me. And I have no choice but to respond appropriately to that. That's the only true route to holiness. Law-keeping will never get me there. The new standing I have before God because of what Jesus has done also gives me a new motive for living rightly. And so my new standing also becomes true of my behavior. There's a commentator that wrote it this way, and living in us, he, meaning Jesus, gives us new desires for holiness, for God, for heaven. It's not that we cannot sin again, we can, but we do not want to. The whole tenor of our life has changed. Everything is different now because we ourselves are different. See how daringly personal Paul makes it here. Christ gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. No Christian who has grasped these truths could ever seriously contemplate reverting to the old life. And so Paul pulls Peter into his arm and says, Peter, do you realize what you've done? You've reverted into the old life. There's no way you can do that when you look at the cross and understand that we are crucified with him. What he has done for us. Holiness comes by following the person who loves us instead of the cold rule posted on a door. There's one powerful closing argument that Paul uses, verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And all of his argument, all of his reasoning comes down to this, verse 21. Paul says to Peter, he makes these last words that are the lasting words. They make everyone in the room go silent. There's no response to them because they're so powerful. It is Paul's way of doing a mic drop here in verse 21. That's what it is. He says this, Peter, if we try to earn the gift of salvation that we've been freely given, then we nullify it and we make it void. In other words, if we could earn it ourselves, we no longer need grace. Grace is an all or nothing thing. Either we receive grace totally or we reject it totally. There is no in-between. If we could find salvation in keeping Jewish observances or holy days, then what would that mean for the cross of Christ? It would mean that it was a waste. It would mean that Jesus died for nothing. 
In your notes, I wrote it this way. If the law can save us, then Jesus literally threw his life away. One of my favorite verses is John chapter 14. And Jesus is with his disciples. And he says, in the middle of a discussion with them, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And then he says, no one, you could capitalize those two words, no one comes to the Father except through me. We've got to ask ourselves, we get asked all the time, why does Jesus say that? Why in the world is it, how could it be possible that he's the only way to heaven? Aren't there a lot of different paths to get up there to God? How, how in the world can Jesus say he's the only way? And in Galatians chapter 2, we have part of the answer. He's the only way because he's the only way for us to obtain righteousness. There is no other way. The law won't get it. Just being a good person, all that proves is that you're not. Christ died because it was the only way for men to obtain righteousness. The only way to walk the line. And so the gospel is a line that must must be walked. And when we fail to walk it and attempt to rebuild the law, we cannot avoid the disaster of Christ having died for nothing. Let's pray together. God, help us to walk the line. Help us to put on Christ. Help us to die. Die to the law and live to God. Because Jesus is the only way that we become beautiful in you. He's the only way that we become loved in your eyes. He's the only way that we become accepted in your eyes. It's not about what we can or can't do. It's about what Jesus has done. And so let us choose him. Let us be crucified with him. And then let us live for him. And it's in Jesus' great saving name that we pray. Everybody said.